The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 8 and verse 12. In the 12th verse and the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We come back for the fourth time to a consideration of this great and mighty statement, which is recorded here in this one verse. It is, as I've been saying, a kind of summary of the message of the Christian faith, the Christian gospel. And I'm calling attention to it quite deliberately for this reason, that if I understand the times in which we're living at all, their main and chief characteristic is confusion. There's confusion about everything. It's obvious in the international realm, isn't it? It's obvious on the national level. It's obvious in the realm of philosophy. It's tragically obvious in the realm of morals. But alas, and most serious of all, there is confusion. Even in the church of God, there is uncertainty and confusion as to the meaning of the very word Christian. Everything seems to be in a state of flux. And therefore I suggest that our first business at such a time as this is to come back to the foundations and to know exactly what the Christian faith is. There is so much talk at the present time about the application of the gospel to this, that, and the other, and the Christian attitude, and the Christian point of view. But before we begin to do anything of the kind, we surely should know what we mean by the term Christian. So you're talking about the Christian attitude if you don't know what a Christian is, or what makes a man a Christian. The danger confronting us today is the danger of missing the wood because of the trees. And therefore we come back and we look at a great statement like this. Haven't you noticed how so constantly in the New Testament you get these summaries of the whole gospel? Our Lord did it himself. John 3.16, this one, many others. And you find the apostolic writers are very fond of doing the same thing. There were several instances of it in that fifth chapter of the second epistle to the Corinthians that we read at the beginning. In other words, it has always been clear that it is very essential that we should be reminded of the centralities, the foundational things. Because once we leave the foundation, we really have nothing at all. Well, now, here it is, I say, in one great verse, and uh, we've been looking at it. The thing that we are struck with at once, of course, is this, that our Lord calls attention to himself. I, he says, he's talking about himself. He's not talking about a point of view. He's not talking about a teaching. It's he. I am the light of the world. He isn't says, I've come to give you a little light on the human situation. No, no. What he says is, I am the light. The person of the Lord is essential. It's vital. There is no Christianity without Christ. That's the trouble today, that people are talking about Christendom and Christianity. There is no such thing apart from Christ himself. The first thing here is not a teaching, it's a person. And then we've seen the uniqueness of his claim. 
It's an exclusive claim. I, he says, and he means I and I alone, am the light of the world. He doesn't need any help, doesn't need any assistance. There is no second, there is nothing additional. There is no need for Christianity to seek further insights from other religions. This is the only true revelation of God. Ah, oh, but there's somebody that's intolerant. Well, Christianity is intolerant. Have you ever read anything more intolerant than this text? I, says this man, who appeared to be just an ordinary Jew and a carpenter at that, not even a Pharisee, he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. He excludes everybody and everything else. It is an exclusive claim. And Christianity is exclusive. It is intolerant. Though we are an angel from heaven, says the Apostle Paul to the Galatians, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be a curse. He doesn't care. Even if it is an angel preaching another message, let him be a curse. There is but one gospel, and there is no other. Very well. What does it tell us? What is this light that we find and see in Christ? Well, I've pointed out to you that it is light upon the whole world situation and about the future of the world. We've dealt with it. But thank God we notice this little word here, He. I am the light of the world, He that followeth me. The New Testament doesn't hold out any hope for this world. I go on saying that every Sunday night, don't I? Perhaps some of you are more ready to agree with me tonight than you were even a week tonight. Summit conferences collapse, you see. You still feel there's hope for this world? The New Testament says there's none. It's a doomed world. It's a condemned world. It's a sinful world. The New Testament doesn't set out to reform this world. It says it cannot be reformed. It's under judgment. It's going to be destroyed. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So we don't waste our time in trying to reform the world. It can't be done. There are temporary changes and improvements. I'm not here to denounce them. Thank God for them. It is the business of all of us to make this world as good a place as we can. That's a very different thing from saying that the world can be delivered and made perfect or reformed. It cannot. You can restrain evil and sin up to a point. It's our duty to do so. But beyond that, we cannot go and nobody ever will go. That's the plain New Testament teaching. But thank God, I say, though that is the position and the truth concerning the world, there is hope for the individual. He that followeth me. This gospel is primarily for the individual. It's a personal message. And surely we all ought to rejoice in that fact at a time such as this. I'm amazed that anybody could object to the fact that the gospel is personal. Can't you see, my friend, that this is your only hope at the present time? That though the world itself is in such a hopeless condition and will get worse and worse, you are not of necessity inextricably involved in that you can be delivered out of it. That's the message of Christianity. It is, as Paul puts it again in writing to the Galatians at the very beginning, that we can be delivered from this present evil world, we can be saved out of the world, 
John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, isn't it? You can go out of the city of destruction and you can be saved and your future can be secure. Now then, the question is, how does that happen? Well, we've seen that our Lord's first answer to that is that we need to know God. All the trouble in the world tonight is due to its ignorance of God. Do you remember how our Lord in his high priestly prayer at the end of his life said, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. That is the trouble with the world. It doesn't know God. Of course, it doesn't realize that. It doesn't realize that that's the cause of its ills. But it is. That's the message of this whole book. The world doesn't know God. It doesn't know anything about him. And hence all its problems and its difficulties. All its disobedience and its sin and its rebellion. And all the consequences that flow from that. So there is the first and the great need. And you'll never know God except in Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Again, you see, it's exclusive. You cannot know God except in and through this blessed person. But we've also seen that he and he alone gives us light with regard to ourselves. And here again we are woefully ignorant. We are in darkness. All the modern views of men which are optimistic and which praise him and which think that by appealing to him and giving him a little knowledge and education, you can solve his problems. You know, it's to me almost incredible that with the world as it is tonight, that people can still go on saying that. That is their basic philosophy, that man is essentially good, and that all he needs is knowledge and information. All he needs is to you appeal to his better instincts, and he'll rise up and respond to it. Well, obviously, I say the newspapers are telling us that he doesn't do so. And that increasingly he isn't doing so. No, no. Man is born in sin. He's evil. All the thoughts of the imaginations of his heart were evil altogether. Man is made in sin. Sin is within him. It's in the very warp and woof of his nature. We're all polluted. Men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. Very well, there he is. There is God and here is man. Christ alone gives us light in these matters. Well, very well, what does all this amount to? Well, it amounts to this. That man's troubles, therefore, all are due to his condition and to his wrong relationship to God. What then is man's supreme need? Now, that's the question that's before us. What is it that man needs primarily this evening? Now, here again is the light which we get alone from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's obvious, isn't it? You go and ask the average man, what do we need tonight? What is man's first, most essential need? And I think you'll find that most people will say that man's first and most essential need is world peace. World peace. The idea seems to be that if only somehow or another we could get these nations and statesmen to agree and abolish their armaments and sign pacts and 
decide never to have war again, that all would be well. World peace. That's the big thing. That's what everybody's talking about. All the interest and the excitement is round and about that. And it is expected of the Christian church that she should be the primary agency in producing world peace. And that the message of Christianity is, of course, a message that is designed to abolish war and to usher in this age of peace. That that is the primary task and business of Christian preaching. Well, I don't know how you feel, my friends. But you know, I'm feeling rather happy in this pulpit tonight. That I didn't spend my time last Sunday evening in this pulpit in giving advice to the leaders of the nations as to what they should say and do at the summit conference. Because if I'd done that, I'd have been wasting my breath and your time, wouldn't I? There wasn't a conference. It never began even. And if I'd spent my time therefore here in telling the statesmen what to do and what to say and what not to do, I say I've been wasting my breath and wasting my time and yours. No, no, that's not the message of the gospel. Well, what is it? Well, as I'm saying, the message of this gospel is this is the thing that the Lord Jesus Christ, this person who stands and says, I am the light of the world, what he says is this. Man's first need, man's most essential need, man's central need, is to be reconciled to God. You cannot abolish war. It will never be abolished. It will never be abolished, I mean, until this final judgment and the return of Christ and the final punishment and destruction of evil and sin. Then there will be universal peace, but not until then. There is no hope in the meantime. Very well then, I say, man's supreme need is this, is to be reconciled to God. And my dear friend, can't you see that it is your most urgent need? Are you still thinking in terms of the world and what's going to happen to the world? Well, aren't you somewhat disabused by now? Uh, aren't you beginning to see that all your hopes are being falsified and the prophecies are falling to the ground round and about you? Isn't it beginning to occur to you that this is your problem? Very well. Here am I in this world. I'm getting older day by day. I may die at any moment. The problem for me is this. How not, not to abolish war, but what can I do about my own eternal destiny? Whether I go out of this world as the result of a bomb or a war or not, whether I die a natural death or whether I die as the result of some infection, it doesn't matter. What matters to me is not how I'm going to die, but the fact that I'm going to die. And the more uncertain the world becomes, the more urgent this problem surely should become for every one of us. I can't solve the problem of world peace. Nobody else can. I'm telling you that it'll never be solved. Very well, my friend, forget that and realize that your business is this. Where do you come in? How do you stand? What's going to happen to you when you die? Now, that's the thing the gospel is concerned about. He that followeth me. Here is one, you see, who indulges in paradox. He's the light of the world. Then he immediately talks about the individual. That is precisely the gospel. Men supreme, I say, men's first need is to be reconciled to God. Do you know your greatest need tonight is not to be happy? It's not to get rid of this or that that's causing you some difficulty. Your primary need is to be forgiven. 
is to be reconciled to God. For we are all sinners before God. Our natures are sinful. We are committing acts of sin constantly. We've done so ever we began acting. We are all sinners in the sight of God and under condemnation. That's our first need. The second follows, of course, to know, to discover how to live while we are left in this world in a worthy and in a good and a right manner. But you notice the order in which I put them. Your first need in mind is not how to live. Our first need, before we proceed a single step, is how to be reconciled to God. That's the message of Christianity. You don't start by saying, how can I live the Christian life? No, no, before you do anything, you need to be reconciled to God, you need to be forgiven. The problem of how to live is not the first problem. And that, not, that is not the primary thing that is emphasized by the Son of God everywhere in his teaching and by these apostles whom he commissioned to go out to teach and to preach. The first thing, the thing that is being so sadly forgotten today, is a man's relationship to God. Job has put the first question first. How can a man be just with God? You know, this is the first thing that our Lord deals with. This is the thing that really makes a man a Christian. Why am I emphasizing this? Well, I'm emphasizing it because I've read a thing like this these last few days. What does it mean to be a Christian, writes this man? Is it a matter of belief or of behavior? Does it consist in knowing the right answers, possessing the proper gifts, belonging to the true body of believers? And he answers, none of these, nor all of them together, as I conceive it, makes a man a Christian. A Christian is one who loves Christ and who, trusting entirely to his enabling grace, seeks to walk in his way. Now, that sounds very wonderful, doesn't it? But it's left out the most important thing. It's left out the first thing. A Christian is first and foremost and essentially a man who is concerned about the question of his relationship to God. The first thing a man who is convicted by the Spirit of God and of Christ, the first question such a man faces is, not how can I live a good life, but what about my sins? What about my past sins? What about my evil nature? What about my reconciliation to God, my whole relationship to God? How can I find God? How can I be just with God? That's the first question. But there is so much, you see, that in the name of Christianity today doesn't even mention that. Doesn't even raise the question. It thinks of Christianity entirely in terms of conduct and of behavior. You look at Christ, you see, he's wonderful, you want to follow him. And you believe that he can enable you to live as he lived. But my dear friend, before you move a step, I say, you've got to face this question. There is your record. There is your past. There is what you've done. And here is this holy God. You need to be forgiven. The first problem is the problem of forgiveness, not of life and living. And that is the light that our Lord casts upon this matter. And that's the thing that I want to unfold to you now this evening. Here I say then is the first thing. How can a man be just with God? Man is as he is, I say, because he's estranged from God. He's not being blessed by God. 
God withholds his blessings from him. God heareth not sinners. And God's displeasure is patently upon the world in which you and I are living at this present hour. So that what man needs above everything is to know God and to have fellowship and communion with him that he may ask him for his blessing and receive it. It's this terrible barrier between man and God. That's the first thing. How is that to be removed? How can the problem of our sin and our guilt be dealt with? My dear friend, if you don't start there, anything you may say is of no value. It's no use talking about loving Christ. If you don't know what you're loving him for, why should you love Christ? What is it to love Christ? You see, these people, they don't like definitions, they say. They don't like theology. They don't like doctrine. Ah, oh, they say you mustn't talk about it. It's none of these things. It's just loving Christ. But you know why you love a person, don't you? You must have some reason. Who is Christ? Why should I love him? What's he done that I should love him? And the moment you ask those questions, you're asking for definitions. And thank God, unlike this supposed Christianity today, this blessed person answers the questions. He does give light. And it's very clear and it's very specific. And his apostles who wrote after him, they define it. They state exactly what it is and what it isn't. You know, this book is full of argumentation. It's full of denunciation of error. It's full of proclamation of truth. And that is Christianity. Not some vague, nebulous, indefinite, sentimental talk about loving Christ and trying to follow him. No, no. My first need is, what can be done with my sin? And the answer is that Christ and Christ alone gives me light upon this. Because every other view about this is quite wrong. What the other views are saying can be summarized in this way. They tell us that all we've got to do is to tell God that we are sorry. To go and tell him that we know we've done certain things that we shouldn't, but that now we've seen how wrong it was, and we're going to live a better life. We're going to follow Christ, this great exemplar for young people, this great hero for the young. We're going to set out after this greatest seat, this moral exemplar. And we're going to follow him, come, and we work ourselves up into a great pitch of eloquence as we talk about admiring and following Christ. And we're going to do a lot of good. We're going to be benefactors. We're going to enter some great moral crusade. We're going to clear the world up. We're going to put everything right. We're going to solve all the problems. We are going to do it all. Where does God come in? Well, they say God, in, God is love and God will forgive you. If you just tell God you're sorry, well, you can be quite sure that God forgives you. Because God is love. And there's no more to it. That's the popular notion, isn't it? You just say you're sorry, you pledge yourself to live a good and a better life and to do good, and to be a philanthropist, and you've got noble ideals and high views, and God will forgive you and will be pleased with you and will smile upon you. That's the teaching. Well, all I ask is this. If that is all that is necessary, why in the name of God did this person called Jesus Christ of Nazareth ever come into this world? Because he tells us here that he and he alone can give us light on this question. And what he tells us at once, of course, is that all this other notion is entirely wrong. 
that he is absolutely vital and central and essential to forgiveness and to reconciliation with God. Why is all this other wrong? Why isn't it just enough that a man should say that he's sorry and did promise to live this better life and then God's love will forgive him? Why? Well, the answer is this, according to our Lord. God seeth the heart. God doesn't merely see our external actions. He sees the heart. Ye are they, he said to the Pharisees, that justify yourselves before men, of course. They only see the outside. But God seeth the heart. For that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. You know that Pharisee that went up into the temple to pray would have impressed men very much. He did fast twice in the week. He did give a tenth of his goods to the poor. He was a very good and moral and religious man. But Christ says that he went back to his house without a blessing. God wasn't pleased with him. The rich young ruler seems very wonderful. Oh, these have I kept from my youth up. But he went away from Christ, sorrowful. It isn't enough, my friend, to be good. It isn't enough to be moral. It isn't enough to be religious. It isn't enough to be a church member. You can do all those things and still you're not reconciled to God. You're not a Christian. God seeth the heart. Not only that, our Lord reminds us of what God's demand of us is. What does God demand of us, do you think? Are you ready to listen to these modern prophets, so-called, these false prophets who say that as long as you do your best and avoid certain sins and do a bit of good, that God will smile upon you and all is well? Is that all that God demands? Who told you so? What's your authority? What's your sanction? If you listen to this person who says, I and I alone am the light of the world, you'll find he says this. Somebody came to him one afternoon and said, Now, which master is the first and the chiefest commandment of the law? And this was the devastating answer. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That is the first and the chiefest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Yes, says the Apostle Paul, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's it. That's God's demand. Now, that is God's demand, I say, and he is in the position of having a right to demand. And that is what God demands. You see, it isn't what you and I demand, it is what God demands. And if we are concerned about being reconciled to God, surely the first thing we should do is not to sit down and think what we think God may ask of us. But listen to what God himself says. Here he's speaking through his son. Here is the light of the world saying, that is God's demand, a total allegiance, an entire devotion. Nothing less. And of course the Apostle James underlines all that by reminding us of this. That if we may keep the whole of the law and fail in one item, we have failed to keep the law. Of course, that's obvious, isn't it? You may be a paragon of all the virtues. You may keep the law of England absolutely perfectly. But, you know, if you, make a, if you fall into transgression, if you break one of the laws, and you're there on trial in a police court, and you say, you know, I've kept all the other laws, it won't help you. You've broken this one. So you're guilty before the law, and you go to your punishment. 
It's exactly like that with God's law. Keep them all, fail in one. And you've broken the law of God. God demands of men perfection. He made him perfect. He was free from sin. And that is what God demands of men. That is what men should be like. He should keep the whole law. And love the Lord his God with the whole, the totality of his being. So that all this other teaching is wrong, you see. It doesn't come anywhere near it. It doesn't begin to approach the problem. And then when you add to all this, that relationships are always between persons. You see, our problem is not to satisfy a list of rules and regulations. It's a personal relationship to God. It isn't, you see, ultimately even a relationship to the law of God. It is to God himself. The law of God is just a definition of God's character, of God's person, and of God's being. It was given in order that men might have some conception of God. But a man is meant to be in a personal relationship to God. Is a, God and God is a person whom I can address as thou. Our Father which art... In heaven, you're praying to a person. And God is holy. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. None at all. God is nothing but light. Who can dwell with the burning light, asks one of these men in the Bible. Who can approach into his presence. God is light and in him is no darkness at all and he's holy. Oh, the holiness of God. He is righteous. He is just. He is unchangeable. He cannot change because he is eternally one and absolute in all his attributes and characteristics. God. My dear friend, I speak with reverence and with fear. It is impossible for God to have any communion with sin. It can't happen. Sin can't exist in the presence of God. There is no communion between light and darkness. You can't mix good and evil. You can't bring together holiness and sin. The thing is an utter impossibility. The character, the being of God makes it impossible. Sin cannot exist near him. God punishes sin. I say he must because he is God and what he is. Very well, therefore, to talk about just being sorry and saying that I'm going to be better and that God will love me and look upon me and smile upon me. My dear friend, it doesn't even begin to see the problem, leave alone, solve it. No, no, this problem of forgiveness is the most tremendous problem that even the Almighty God has ever confronted. You know, the problem of forgiveness makes the problem of creation disappear and pale into insignificance. It was easy to create. He had but to say, let there be light, and there was light. But when it comes to reconciling men and to forgive sins, a word couldn't do it. He'd sent his prophets. He gave his law. It wasn't enough. This is the problem of the universe, the problem of eternity. How can God forgive a man? That's the light that Jesus Christ throws on the problem. He says, I am the light of the world. 
Have you begun to see your need of forgiveness? Have you come to see your estrangement from God? Have you seen that you're banished out of God's sight, thrust out of paradise? Have you seen the cherubim and the flaming sword guarding the entrance back? Are you longing to know God and to come back to him? Do you seek God's blessing and his benediction upon your life? He says, I and I alone can give you light on this question. And there is no other light. The moment you begin to examine the problem, you'll see there's none. Very well, let me give you proof of his contention. Here is the question. What is this Son of God doing in this world? Why did he ever come here? That's the question you've got to answer. Why was the incarnation essential? Why did it ever take place? Have you ever thought what it means? Here is this blessed person, this second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, from eternity in the bosom of the Father, enjoying that unmixed bliss of glory and of eternity, dwelling in the light and glorying in it. But he comes out of it all. He who made the world and without whom was nothing made that is made, he left it all. He came into this world, humbled himself, was born as a helpless babe and put into a manger, mixed with ordinary men and women, heard their blasphemy and their cursing, saw their sin and their evil, shared their life. Why has he done it? Why did he have to do it? Why did he come? You've got to answer that question. It wasn't merely to tell us that God is love, you know, that was known in the Old Testament. As a father pitieth his children, says a psalm. Don't you believe this nonsense that there's nothing about the love of God in the Old Testament? The Old Testament's full of the love of God. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up, says another psalmist. That's the love of God. Don't talk without knowing what you're saying, my friend. The Old Testament's full of the love of God. He didn't come into the world just to tell us that God was love. He didn't come to tell us just to live a good and a moral and a clean life. The Old Testament did all that. That's the meaning of the law and the preaching of the prophets and all these things. But you see, that isn't enough. The Old Testament tells you that it isn't enough. The Old Testament proclaims the character of God. Tells us all about him, all his glorious attributes, love included. Tells us the kind of life we should live, but it isn't enough. How do you know, says someone? Oh, I'll tell you how I know. The whole of the Old Testament is looking forward. It sees the need of a deliverer. It's waiting for a Messiah. There is a Christ to come. There is a Shiloh that's going to appear. There is a star that's going to arise out of Jacob. And a scepter out of Israel, the whole of the Old Testament is looking, it's waiting. The prophets have it still more clearly. We need someone, we need deliverance. This is but a hope. This is just something to keep us going. This isn't enough, they say. We need to be delivered, and there is a deliverer that's going to come. The old original promise about the seed of the woman that was going to bruise the serpent's head. Here it is. What's the meaning of all these burnt offerings and sacrifices that I read about? Why does a lamb have to be killed every morning and every evening and offered in the temple? What's the meaning of these burnt offerings, these meal offerings, all these sacrifices? What's the shedding of blood? What's all this blood in the Old Testament? What's it about? Oh, it's all proclaiming just one great message. 
Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Something's got to be done about this. All the blood of bulls and goats isn't enough. All this is but a type, it's but a shadow. It's all pointing to someone who's going to come and do it all. Who is he? Here he is. He's come. He says, I am the light of the world. I'm the answer. I'm the antitype of all the types. I'm the fulfillment of all the promises. All the promises of God in me are yea and amen to the glory of God. I am the light of the world. Look at me. Listen to me. That's why he came. It is the problem of your sin and mine. It is this problem of forgiveness. That's why he came into the world. It couldn't be done by a word from heaven. My friends, don't misunderstand me. I'm taking no risk when I say this. God could not forgive men by just saying so. I'll say something more. If he could have, he would have. But he couldn't because he's God. So the Son of God came into this world. But what for? I ask again, was it merely to teach us? Was it merely to tell us about the love of God? Was it just to give us an example how to live? Was it merely only to help us how to live? As this quotation puts it, no, no. There was something prior, there was something that had to come before, and he came to do that. So I put the crucial question. Why did he come? And the answer is that he came to die. He came deliberately into this world to die. I can prove it to you. He said so himself. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. His friends, his followers appealed to him not to go. They said, you know what's going to happen to you. He did it deliberately. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And here comes the point when they're about to arrest him. Peter pulls out his sword, put it back, he says. That's not my way, he says. He wouldn't be defended. He said, don't you know that I could command twelve legions of angels to carry me to heaven if I wanted to? But how could then all righteousness be fulfilled? He came to die. Deliberately. That's the great message of this book. Listen to the forerunner, John the Baptist. What does he say about him? Well, there he stands one afternoon with two of his followers and he says, Behold, look at, see, gaze upon the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's what he is. Before he started doing anything, the forerunner says, there he is. He is the Lamb of God, referring to these Old Testament sacrifices. The Lamb of God that was offered morning and evening. The Paschal Lamb and all the rest. The Lamb of God. Not men's lambs any longer. God's own Lamb. God's provided the sacrifice. Behold, the Lamb of God. What's he come for? Well, not as I read in a paper that's supposed to be evangelical at Easter time. On this very text, behold, the Lamb of God, that he'd come into the world to help us to... Have a victory over sin in our lives? No, no. The Lamb of God comes to be slaughtered. 
not primarily to help us how to live, but to save us from eternal death. The lamb is going to be offered. The lamb is going to be slaughtered. Our sins are transferred to the lamb. The lamb, the business of the lamb, is to reconcile us. His blood is shed. He doesn't help us to live primarily. No, no, I say he saves us from eternal death and the punishment that our sins so richly deserves. The lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But listen to him saying it himself. He says, I am the light of the world. Well, what does he say? What light does he give me on my problem? This is the answer in this same gospel, chapter 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lifted up on a cross, crucified, dead, killed. He says, that's what I'm here for. That's my work. And here, you know, in this very chapter that we're looking at, he says later on, he said, then said Jesus unto them in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. It's still, you see, the same thing about his death. Listen to him in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He's not mere leader or exemplar. He's not merely leading them to a better way of life. He's laying down his life. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down of myself, he says. I'm only picking out random statements. These gospels are full of it. Listen to him in chapter 12, I, if I be lifted up, shall draw all men unto me. Father, the hour is come. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? Nay. For this hour came I into the world. The hour. The hour of darkness, yes, but the hour when the prince of this world shall be cast out. The hour for which he'd come. Everything leads to this. He didn't come merely to live. He didn't come merely to teach. He came to die. The hour. Listen to him again. The Son of Man, he said, is come not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he says, who is the light of the world. And he's talking about this problem of sin. But look at him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's the meaning of his agony? Why is he sweating great drops of blood? Why does he say, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What's happening there? My dear friend, why the agony? Oh, says somebody shrinking from death. It's but human to do so. Nonsense. The martyrs never did that. The martyrs preached on the stake. They gloried as they were thrown into the arena to the lions that they were accounted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. You're making him less than his own followers. No, no. Why the blood? Why the sweat? Why the agony? I'll tell you. He was facing this terrible problem. That there was only one way whereby men could be forgiven. And that is that their sins should be put upon him and that he should bear their punishment. And that punishment involved separation from his blessed father. He who had looked into the face of God from all eternity could see that a moment would come when clothed with the sins of men he wouldn't see his father and would feel forsaken. So he cries upon the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
That's what he came to do. Listen to him expounding it after his resurrection. You'll find it at the end of the last chapter of Luke's Gospel. Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. There is no repentance or remission of sins except in his name. And the apostles came to see it, Peter could say, There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. What does Paul preach in Thessalonica? Isn't it this? That the Christ must needs have suffered and that this Jesus which I preach unto you is the Christ. He must suffer. He must die. The deliverer is not to be a political personage. No, no. He's one who's got to suffer and die. The death of Christ and the glory that should follow. And so the apostle is able to remind the Corinthians when he writes to them later on, that which I delivered unto you at the beginning, he said, what was it? Well, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose the third day according to the scriptures. What is the message of the gospel? What have I got to preach as an ambassador of Christ? Isn't it this? That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing unto them their trespasses. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Yes, says Peter, how have you been redeemed? Not with gold or silver or any such thing, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What is it that gives me forgiveness? The blood of Jesus Christ, says John, cleanseth us from all sin and unrighteousness. If any men sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation of our sins, and not of ours only, but also of the sins of the whole world. Yes, says John, having his vision on Patmos. Unto him that has loved us and washed us in his own blood. That's what makes a man a Christian, my friend. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. It is the only way. Sin must be punished. And sin has been punished in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. God has smitten him by his stripes. We are healed. God hath set him forth as a propitiation for our sins. It is by his blood, his death, that we are forgiven. 
and are reconciled to God. That is the light that he gives upon this first and most vital problem. Have you got it? Have you seen it? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Have you ever seen the need of forgiveness? Had you realized that the problem of your sin was such that nothing but the coming of the Son of God into this world from heaven and his dying upon the cross and his blood being shed could possibly have delivered you and solved the problem. It is by him and by him alone, Jesus Christ, and him crucified, that we are reconciled to God, become children of God, are blessed by God, are saved out of the world, from hell, and to heaven and glory and the bliss of eternity. Are you in the light? Do you see it? Do you realize that the Son of God has so loved you that he died for you? Have you fled to him? Are you hiding in Christ? Have you pleaded with him to receive you? Have you turned to him and said, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. It is the only way of forgiveness. The only way to be reconciled to God. The only way to lose the fear of death and the grave and the judgment and eternity. The end of the world and all things. To become a child of God. And well beloved. In his holy sight. Fly to him. Let the healing stream flow upon him. And cleanse you. And deliver you. And heal you. Amen.